All right, welcome to the Armchair Commanders podcast. My name is John. And I'm Jack. And this week we are joined by a special guest, uh, Greg. And this week, uh, by his request, we are doing the classic submarine film, Run Silent, Run Deep. Uh, Greg, if you want to say hi and uh, tell the people a little bit a little bit about yourself, go on ahead. Sure. My name is Greg. Uh, I am a museum professional. I've been working in the museum field of historic ships for about a decade at this point. I am currently employed by the Independent Seaport Museum in Philadelphia, and I oversee the caretaking of two historic vessels, uh, the protected cruiser USS Olympia and the Baleo-class submarine USS Bakuna. Nice. It's great to have you with us. So kind of starting off, uh, how do you, how does one get a job uh, looking after old naval ships? Like that's, uh, a lot that of, doesn't, a lot of luck. <laughs> I was going to say that doesn't seem like something you can just like put in an application like McDonald's or something. No, and and the museum field in general is like the way people fall into it is different for everyone. Um, the way I kind of fell into it was like I graduated. Uh, from University of Maryland, Baltimore County, way, way back in 2012 uh, with a degree in history. And coming out of, out of college, I was trying to figure out what I actually wanted to do with that degree in history. Um, you know, the, most people do academics, most so this museum's uh, work is one op- opportunity. Um, lots of historians go on to become lawyers, that sort of thing. Um, I had started work on a master's degree um, in history to kind of buff my a higher ability a little bit and during that process uh, i was able to intern at the fire museum of maryland and that was kind of my first museum experience and that kind of got me thinking okay this is this is something that i, I enjoy and something that i could see myself doing for a while i fell into uh naval history um just by sheer dint of when my grandfather passed away the navy showed up at his funeral and rendered him like full honors like the cat flag over the casket the gun salute everything that was the first time any of us knew he was in the Navy, like his grandchildren, because he never talked about it. For us, he was always the retired fireman. And so okay. cleaning out his basement afterwards, uh, I stumbled across his baseball cap and a cigar box full of old photographs. And I was able to do some research and find out that he was aboard a, uh, the, a destroyer called the USS Brush. He was a boiler tech and his ship was at Okinawa and Iwo Jima. And so understanding that, I kind of knew why he didn't talk about his service, particularly those two battles. A lot of veterans uh, do not talk about those battles because they were such horrible affairs to go through. Um, And then in 2013, I got a job as a docent or a tour guide at Historic Ships in Baltimore. I was there for three years and then I moved up to Philly uh, in 2016 because they were looking specifically for somebody with submarine history knowledge. And so I fit the bill for them and I came up here. So once you start working for, uh, is it, is it considered the USS Olympia museum or is it like a, an overarching organization that oversees those ships? The formal title of the organization is independent seaport museum. And so okay. if you like go to Google, that's usually the first thing that pops up if you search USS Olympia. 
So you won't you won't find a USS Olympia museum. You'll have to search for uh, the Independence Seaport Museum. Okay. And how long have you been with that particular museum? Uh, it'll be let's see, eight years in this coming March, I believe. So a little over seven and a half. Nice. I will say I I also have a, a strong affinity for. Uh, firefighting museums i i used to be a firefighter myself did you yes i i did and let's see if i can actually show it off here but i have uh oh, very nice an old school steam pump engine on my forearm but yeah so i know when we were originally talking um there's a couple of different movies that came to mind what made you land on uh, run silent run deep it's a classic first and foremost everyone knows run silent run deep uh, it does a lot really well in terms of portraying submarine operations but, but it also gets enough wrong where i think we could have a conversation a good conversation about 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 that so that was kind of what drove my decision making all right so as uh we usually like to start jack what'd you think I like this movie. In fact, this might be one of my top ten war mo- new war mo- favorite war movies now. What about is this the it? first time you've seen it? Yeah, first time in my life I've seen it. Okay, I think that's kind of a a common thing, especially like nowadays. Is like a lot of these older classic war movies. Everybody has heard of them or is familiar with the titles, but like, I think the viewership of these older films is drastically going down as time passes. Yeah, I, I think war movies in general, it's become something that you have to, to seek out, um, especially for us, even as, as a museum that deals with, you know, war, wartime issues. Um, we're starting to reach a point and it's not just ism it's it's a lot of historic ships in general we're starting to reach a point where we're losing the veterans we're losing the immediate descendants of veterans and so as a museum and how to think about longevity moving forward we have to start thinking about how do we reach younger audiences who may not have those direct connections to the subject material we're presenting and i think movies suffer from that as well it definitely is. And I think the other part of it, too, is that, you know, this film definitely, you know, it is absolutely a product of its time. It very much follows the format of films from the 40s and 50s. And a lot of, you know, I think a lot of people today don't really relate to that older style of, of storytelling. Yeah, it's... It's, it's a different cast of characters, like even ignoring like Richardson and um, Bledsoe, like the tropes that they fill out, I don't think are tropes that are that connect to younger audiences, especially these days. Yeah, I think uh, I think a younger audience would have difficulty with this film because I think you would be like, oh, this is just chock full of tropes. But then you have to also realize that this is a film that literally created a lot of tropes, especially within the, the like submarine movie genre. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't bother to think about how, yeah. uh, how many films were influenced by this film. I, I, lo- I actually that would actually lo- be something to go back and look at. I actually looked this movie up on TV tropes, and it <clears throat> pretty much said what submarine tropes this movie didn't invent. It helped codify. And one of the one of the tropes that helped codify is literally called hot sub on sub action. <laughs> I gotta say, I I did love the uh, the sub versus sub scenes in this movie. Um, it's not very often that I I get that like edge of my seat feeling in a movie. Like I can get pretty immersed in a film. But I, I genuinely felt very stressed towards the end of this film as the two the the American submarine and the Japanese submarine were about to cross each other and you're like, oh, they're about to hit and like you know that they're just filming two models sailing by each other, but you're like I still felt myself tensing up because I'm like, mm, is it gonna happen? Yeah. As a historian, I, I kind of look at those sorts of sorts of scenes from a different light because I know historically during World War II, there was only ever one confirmed case of a submerged submarine shooting another submerged submarine and being successful. So whenever those scenes kind of pop up, I always kind of have to like put the historian in the back of my brain and be able to enjoy it kind of like just as a normal movie person. And wasn't that the only case in history of what one sub sinking another? I believe so, yes. Because I, I, obviously there were none during the Cold War. So I believe so. Yeah, well, I mean, and I, one, hot sub one sub action doesn't happen quite as often as movies make you think it does. Yeah, that, that was at the back of my mind too when I watched that. Like, there's only been one case, but if you guys want to, if you guys want to go for number two, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I will say uh, the other part of this, like, I kind of relate to you, Greg, in the fact that. This film is definitely one of those films that if you if you really dig submarines and like read accounts from World War II and stuff like that and are kind of in tuned with the the knowledge of that particular field, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this film. You're like, come on, like the f- and I know this is it kind of a silly thing to hit on uh, because it's not the point of it, but this. This film tries to draw a lot of suspense, and one way they could have done that is by having a tor- having a torpedo <laughs> hit a target and just like bounce off of it. But no, like every single torpedo in this film is straight and true, and immediately blows up every ship that they try and. Yeah, especially because I'm I'm pretty sure this film is supposed to take place in like early '43, and the Mark 14 issues were not ironed out by then. So that would have definitely been something to hit on. Um, but that being said, like the whole issue with the Mark 43 or Mark 14 rather, uh, it was that the Navy and the Bureau of Ordnance didn't want to admit that they had gotten something wrong. And so I wonder how much of that, especially with uh, the technical advisor being a rear admiral, uh, plays into that. Well, that makes me think uh, you could technically say there's been two submarine on submarine sinkings if you count the, uh, what was it, the USS Tang that sunk itself because the torpedo ran in a circle. Yeah, and there's probably a couple more that we don't know about. I mean, with no survivors coming back to tell you what exactly happened, there might be a few more that had that issue and we just don't know. 
that's another thing I wanted to bring up at the beginning of the movie when his oh, ship the opening gets, scene when his ship yeah. gets blown up and they're all just floating. <laughs> like, I don't think that happened. No, no. A, a submarine it, being depth charged at depth is going to take everyone with it. Yeah, first and foremost, they're and dead. Secondly, like, yeah. Secondly, like all the floating wood, like no, subdecks made a teak precisely because they didn't float. Like teak didn't float because if a piece broke off, it wouldn't betray the position of the boat. And so having that scene, I chalked up to like movie necessity. Yeah, historically speaking, nah. If they all died there, the movie would be like five minutes long. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and how we else are we? That, su- we wouldn't have that sweet tale of revenge to follow the entire movie. No, well, but, was... so, but that being said, they could have gotten around it by, like, referencing Tang. Right? Tang did have survivors. The CEO being one of them, because she was conducting a nighttime surface attack, and so when that torpedo hit the hit the boat, he was on the bridge outside of the main pressure hull and got thrown into the water. So there is that way to get around it. I uh, I also remember the Tang, um, that was more towards the end of the war, but they were operating in shallow enough water that basically like, it was like the tail end of the ship sunk into the seabed and the very front of the ship was like maybe 10 to 20 feet underneath the surface of the water. And it was, I believe it was one of the first times that, God, I hope I'm saying this right, the Momsen or Momsen lungs were used successfully? Uh, so, yeah, the Tang sank in about 180 feet of water, and fleet boats are three hundred, a little over 300 feet long. So, yeah, her bow was actually still sticking above the water initially. Uh, the crew, the surviving crew in the forward end of the boat actually bottomed her out, so they deliberately flooded the forward ballast tanks to, to level her out so they could use the escape trunk in the forward torpedo room. I don't remember if the Momsen lung was actually used in that instance or not. Um, the forward escape trunk is only good for 100 feet of water or less, and so they were pushing twice the limit. Uh, I, I, the numbers are skipping me, but I think something like 13 guys tried to escape, only five made it to the surface. Um, but it was... It was one of the only times that we know that the forward escape trunk was used uh, to get guys out of a stricken boat. I feel like that would have made, like, using the Tang would have made for a great intro to this film. Yeah, it would have set it up, at least from my historian's perspective, to be a little bit more believable in that case, at least. But I will say, uh, if it... If it wasn't for our our Japanese destroyer, we wouldn't have our, you know, Moby Dick inspired Captain's Obsession story to happen. So that's true. But that also brings me to another piece that I have an issue with. Uh, Richardson very clearly had some PTSD. There is no way he would ever see command ever again, let alone convince a board of admirals to give him a boat. That's also got to look a little suspicious. It's like, what do you mean you're the only one from your submarine that's alive? Well, there, I think there was some, some discontinuity in the film regarding that because the opening scene had multiple survivors. It showed multiple people yeah. coming to, to debris. But then later on, it, he says that he's the only survivor. Or I think Bledsoe accuses him of being the only survivor. So there is there was some discontinuity there. But again, 50s film, we'll chalk it up to that. 
See, it was a it was a long float back to Pearl Harbor, and they only had so much food. Yeah. Now you're getting the, into uh, Indianapolis territory. The guy got hungry. <laughs> so did the sharks. But I think Jack, if I'm not mistaken, this is our uh, this is our first film that we've reviewed that has uh, Clark Gable in it. Damn, you're right. Which I'm I'm shocked that we've made it this far given what kind of a, a huge star he was in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, man. Would you, uh, what'd you think of his uh, performance in this film? Pretty good. I think we picked the right Clark Gable movie to start Clark Gable. <laughs> I do remember seeing uh, an article about how there's quite a few... Uh, World War II veterans who were upset by him getting chosen to portray this role because at the time that this film was done he was like 55, 60 years old or something like that and I think the the average age of a submarine captain was like 30 Yeah, that sounds about right 30, 35 would have been your average commanding officer but I mean, at least having Clark Gable is more, uh, it seems more legit than having John Wayne do a bunch of different roles. Because, you know, Clark Gable actually served in World War II, so at least he has that going for him. Well, we, we, we could do Operation Pacific next time if we want to talk John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh... We just our last film we reviewed was a John Wayne film, and uh, we weren't we weren't too terribly kind to him. But I don't think I've I've heard of Operation Pacific. What's I'm guessing that's another like naval film. Operation Pacific, yeah, it's another World War II submarine film. Um, I for, I honestly forget the overall premise, but John Wayne is the commanding officer of USS Thunderfish, and. Uh, they go and do some stuff. Uh, the one scene that I remember that film is they, there's a portrayal of a Q ship in that film where they think it's a, it's a, a merchant vessel and they're going to, they're going to sink it with deck guns and they get close enough. And all of a sudden the Q ship reveals that it ha also has deck guns and shoots back at the submarine. Haha, <laughs> Sherrod, you are. Indeed. <laughs> so Greg, who was your, uh, your favorite character in this film? I don't remember his name, and he dies. He's the he's the young guy that bets on Area Seven. Oh yeah, that he guy. Gets, he oh. getting, he's just he's just like the quintessential like most like the, the reality of it is most of these submarine crews are, are 18, 19, 20 year old kids who are young and dumb and just want some kind of adventure. And he is the quintessential portrayal of that. Plus, also the the added on of uh, like sailor superstition. Like that whole aspect of the film, I really enjoyed. He, he kind of reminded me of Butters from South Park. I was just yeah. about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez, fellas! If only I had been born on the eighth. <laughs> oh, jeez! I wish I was born on the eighth. <laughs> All right, kid. We forgive you. You can give us our money back. 
Oh, geez, guys. I just, my conscience got to me. I threw all the money overboard. What? <laughs> Man, like, after he won that scene, I even said to myself, guess who's getting robbed tonight? <laughs> yeah. They know where he sleeps. They know where he sleeps and works. Oh, uh, yes. My my personal favorite was, uh, it's, it's hard to hate... Uh, Don Rickles, especially seeing as he's almost his own trope in every film. <laughs> yeah, he's a good one. My fa- my favorite moment with him is when uh, Clark Gable, after he's injured, is he you know he passes out for a few minutes and he uh, wakes up in one of the cots and he has the like the ship's medic or the ship's doctor looking at him. And there's Don Rickles right behind him. And he's like, here, have a drink of this. It'll help you. And he's like, what is it? And he's like, it's medicine. 100 proof. <laughs> the question that uh, Richardson should have asked was, is it depth charge, depth charge rations or is it torpedo juice? Uh, yes, good old torpedo juice. Would, would you like to, Jack, have you ever heard of torpedo juice? I've heard of it. Greg, could you uh, elaborate? I, I can, yes. So the the Mark 14s were steam-driven torpedoes, but the fuel source they used was a blend of methanol and ethanol alcohol. Oh, sense. I see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> so it was uh, not uncommon for uh, submariners to use the alcohol in the uh, torpedoes to get themselves ratty because <laughs> by this point in time, the U.S. Navy doesn't really carry alcohol uh, aboard its ships. And so uh, a submariner screwdriver would be torpedo fuel and tang powder mixed together. Right. Common, uh, yeah. <laughs> Good old tang. <laughs> That's why the torpedoes kept missing. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have enough fuel. Forward torpedo room report. <laughs> Why you want? The by the uh, by the Cold War, the Navy had started dyeing the torpedo alcohol pink, so that if someone had it in a glass, they you know the officer would know what it was, and they couldn't you know lie about it. <laughs> Jesus, it's like putting a dye pack in a bundle of money. <laughs> yeah. Jack, who is your uh, favorite character in this film? I think I think it was Butters as well. Good old Butters. I I forget. Did Butters did Butters die in this film? Because yeah, he got crushed by a torpedo. Ah, yeah. Okay. I couldn't remember if he was one of the ones that that got killed. Yeah, he was. Yeah, oh, hamburgers! <laughs> superstition karma got caught up to him. Yeah. What was the superstition that he crossed? Don't bet on seven or something. Yeah, so the the area that they were assigned to, Area 7, was set up to be, because of the destroyer, you know, it's, it's bad luck to go into that area. And so because he bet on that they would be assigned to that area, he kind of invited that bad luck to the boat. Dude. That's, uh, that caught up to him, so, so to speak. What a dummy. I mean... 
Personally, I think throwing the money overboard out of guilt was the bad luck move more so than that. But what <laughs> yeah, do I well, know? Especially now that his family's going to have to pay for a funeral. Yeah, idiot. I mean, you don't... Well, if if I remember correctly, they shot him out of a torpedo to make the Japanese think they were sunk. Yeah, oh, yeah that's right, they did. And then Tokyo Rose gave him a shout-out on their favorite radio show. That was something I, I actually enjoyed in, greatly in this film was uh, the appearance of Tokyo Rose and how like she is a constant presence in the film because they're always listening to her. And I, I did enjoy that because that is it's not something that's touched on in films very often. And genuinely, that is probably one of the few forms of entertainment that they would have had at this time is listening to Tokyo Rose. So I I did like hearing her little appearance. Yeah, it was definitely a nice touch, kind of a nice nod mm-hmm. to kind of like the Japanese kind of what's the word I'm looking for? Like like the the attempt on American morale with her. You know, reading off the names of the dead, making them think about what they've done and, and you know, kind of kind of gaslighting them in a way, oh you did this because you came out here. So it's it's a it's an aspect of, of the war that yeah that isn't really talked a whole lot about. I also like the fact that it like it not only was it a nod to their day to day life, but it actually played an actual part in the the story of this movie where you know Tokyo Rose comes on to the radio and says, you know, you I've what was Nurkin? Was that how they said it? The Nurkin, name? yeah. The Nurka? The, yeah, the boat's Nurka, name is the Nurka. Nurka. Yeah. So they're like, <clears throat> to the, the families of the crew of the Nurka, they're not coming home. And then they list off the names of the officers and, uh, you know, our main, our main character. He's like, wait, how did they know our name? And then he does his little Sherlock Holmes sleuthing thing. And he's like, by God. They actually do think we're sunk. But, you know, that's how they find out that, like, the trash wasn't being disposed of properly. Which, I feel like they would have known how to have done it by this point in the war. But, you know, for the sake of the story, you know, it was... Yeah. Like, Especially, like, the initial the initial issue with the trash being thrown overboard. And they, were, where they almost lose a guy. No one would be allowed topside without the express permission of the officer of the deck. Because he's the one that has to keep a head count for everyone. So to have someone just, you know, leave the, the pressure hole and throw trash overboard without telling anybody is not not uh, not realistic. Um, I'm, I'm going to caveat this by saying both museum subs that I've worked on have been modernized, but both of them had garbage disposal units, um, which are mini torpedo tubes that go out the bottom of the boat you load the trash into those into a weighted bag and then fire it at the bottom of the boat so no one has to go topside i don't know when those would have been introduced into the fleet so early war boats might not have had it but both boats that i have worked on as a museum professional have had those i'm curious like i i do understand the whole like following the breadcrumb theory here in this movie but also, maybe the oceans were, were cleaner in, in 1943, but I just think about, like, 
you ever watch any kind of environmental video today about like oh we have to clean up the oceans and whatnot like the oceans are literally filled with so much garbage that it makes you wonder like how effective of a tracing tool that would be i suppose the theory behind that if it's if it's floating it's relatively recent hmm. but then again you don't know until you pick it up and look into it i suppose that's the right. whole that's the whole intelligence bit. There's somebody who's paid to look at somebody else's trash. So Jack, what was your uh, favorite scene in this movie? I liked it when they blew up the ships <clears throat> and that aha Here. moment, that aha moment they had when they found out it was another sub that sank the other ship. Which you think they would have detected that, but meh, suspense and whatnot. I will say the uh, the first time we see a ship get blown up and we have it through like the periscope view, like that was a real like chest thumping moment. We're like, yeah, that was <laughs> that was kick ass, America. And then when they go to sink another ship, it's it's almost just like a shot for shot remaking your i was like oh oh <laughs> yeah i, I didn't money. understand uh this richardson's obsession with the down the throat shot like that's that's the hardest shot to pull off like if you're a submarine that's not the position you want to be in to begin with to fire a torpedo but i guess he felt that the akakazi wouldn't be lured by anything else how about you greg what was your uh favorite scene in this film I honestly like the scene where the other officers call Bledsoe into the wardroom to try to get him to take over command and Bledsoe kind of denies them because Bledsoe could have easily been set up as the mutineer. And that was the moment in the movie where I realized that I could actually root for this guy. Where he was just sticking to his guns and he's like, everybody shut up. Yeah. Where, you know, they're all coming in. We've been looking at the Navy regulations. You can take over. And he goes, no, this boat has one captain and you will all follow. We'll follow him to the bottom of the ocean. That's where he wants to go. Also leads to another great uh, Rickles moment where he he calls one of the officers an ass. (laughs) Gosh, Mr. Cartwright. Words just can't, don't work for me anymore. Punches him. (laughs) My other favorite scene was when they first get the word to go to the Bungo Straits and it just goes down the grapevine. Bungo Straits, Bungo Straits. I, I I paused the movie at that time to call John and said, Bungo Straits. <laughs> I also like, uh, you know, I found this, speaking of the whole Bungo Straits thing, one, that's a hilarious name for uh, a sea passage. Um, but secondly, I also appreciated that, like, this film is not that far removed from World War II. We're maybe, what, like a decade out? So the, the feelings are still fresh. And with the exception of the little carving of Bungo Pete, which is like a super over the top caricature. Like the way that the Japanese are portrayed in this film is actually like, at least from my perspective, it seemed very reasonable and not 
totally disrespectful, which I I feel is a line that they could have very easily crossed with how close a proximity to the end of the war they were. Yeah, especially for this time period, that was a thought that I had as well, is this movie was not nearly as racist as it could have been. Like it, there are multiple scenes where the Japanese sailors are shown like they have like perfect uniforms. They, they act very serious and very professional and like none of them are that like over the top caricatures that we see in a lot of other films in this time period. I'm like, this is, I was, I was generally surprised. I'm like, this is an interesting choice for them for the, for the time. Yeah, and I like I like that it didn't even bother translating the Japanese words and phrases. You just had to infer it yourself. Yeah, I was wondering if the the version I was watching didn't have subtitles or if, if they were somewhere else, but I'm glad that it seems like there weren't subtitles uh, across the board. But at the same time, like you didn't really need them. Like you kind of got the gist of what was being said based on their their acting performances right yeah yeah and you still like especially like on the japanese submarine you could still feel the like tenseness and the like you could still gather you know you could gather what's going on without the explicit like knowing what they're saying yeah that scene it's very much i i makes me think of like the old western like standoffs like when they're having a shootout and the you know the tension that builds before one of them draws it's almost that same kind of tension where you've got the two subs and they're they're waiting to see who makes noise first or crash into each other yeah or i I think bottom out too because i think bledsoe mentioned that they were slowly sinking if they were if they didn't put the motors back on they would just kind of bottom out hmm I did have a question for you. When you said bottom out, it made me think of one particular scene, which was right after uh, one of the scenes where they get depth depth charged. uh, One of the hatches is damaged and water starts pouring in. And when I saw that, I immediately thought to myself, I'm like, wouldn't a damaged hatch just be like immediately catastrophic? It, it would largely depend on the depth you're at. Um, shallower depths, maybe not immediately. It would certainly certainly mean more water is getting into the boat than what the movie portrayed. Um, the deeper you are, it becomes more of an issue because more water at that pressure is coming in. Um, later, later war boats had um, these things called depth charge claws or hooks. And there are these hooks welded on the inside of the hatch that fit into slots inside the trunk to prevent just that, where if the hatch comes loose and the spring tries to open, those hooks will keep it in place. Um, but yeah, having a hatch blown open like that is generally bad news. Okay. So I, I wasn't overthinking it then, because I was like, it the way that this movie portrayed it, you could tell that it was obviously a bad thing, but you're... But it was like, oh, we'll we'll get it fixed. It's fine. We'll just tie it down with a rope. And I'm like, this this doesn't seem like the ship should still be 
operating at this point. Yeah, especially because to get the rope onto the hatch, you would have to climb up through the incoming water, and that's probably not going to happen. So it, it, it would have been a more severe situation than what the movie portrayed it as. But I mean, there's there's a lot of things about this movie submarine that isn't really accurate or doesn't really make sense, at least just from my own. I've, I've only ever been on one uh, World War II submarine before, and it's the, I forgot the, the name of it. I think it's the Pampanito, the, the, the one that's in San Francisco. Um, yeah, that's that's Pampanito, yeah. So I've been on that one, and being on that particular sub, like I always knew that they were small and kind of tight, confined spaces, but you really don't appreciate like how small a sub actually is until you're inside of one. And uh, this film makes a lot of the spaces seem kind of luxurious, like the like the crew dining area in the submarine in this movie. I'm like, where did they find the space for this? Like, it looks like a full-on, like, dining hall. Yeah, I got the sense that a lot of the interior shots were definitely sets. Um, they were pretty good sets overall, honestly. Um, but if, if you... For someone like myself who has the, the background and the knowledge, you can definitely tell that they were sets. Externally, all of the external uh, shots were uh, USS um, Redfish? Redfin? Redfish? So they actually used a... Uh, an actual naval diesel boat for the external shots, but I'm, I, I would I would say that probably about ninety percent of the internal shots were sets. What was uh, what was the biggest thing that kept kind of like bugging you in this film when it came to the submarine layout that they were portraying? There were a few instances where they showed scenes in the forward battery, which is where Officer's Country is. And just the way that they had the layout for the doors to the different uh, staterooms wasn't quite accurate. And so every time somebody would like pretend we're supposedly coming in from from let's say they were coming in from the aft end, but that was the forward end setup. It, so it, there was there were some issues there that I kept noticing. Those that, that was actually the biggest thing for me. I, I think as far as the set set goes, everything else was more or less believable. I don't know about you guys, but the uh, the one part of the the ship which was not a standard issue thing that I appreciated, or like the con, it it showed great continuity in the film. In this one regard, was the the poster of the pinup that they had in their dining section, and that like it was probably like three or four separate times in the film where the camera zooms in on this pinup as like some major action is happening and like each crew member pats the this picture of a pinup's butt as they go to whatever station they're going to i thought that was uh like a great little like c or what's the word the semen Ha, Seaman. Um, <laughs> the uh, kind of going to that superstitious side of uh, of sailors, where it's like, 
okay this is it's like this is the ship's girl so we're we're going to we're going to pat her on the butt before we go to work like yeah it's it's a it's a good luck thing right it's also a, a morale thing so like you know the captain would have had every right to tell them to take it down but he didn't because he understands the value that that has for the crew is is beyond what what the pinup is in and of itself right and who is he to stand in the way of superstition after seeing what it did to um, semen buzz semen butters <laughs> semen butters well, he was almost he was almost taken out by semen butters superstition i guess technically you could say he was just not as quickly yeah just, <laughs> it was a slow release death for him i got oh, tired no, I... of Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Jack. Oh, I got tired of that one thing where the um he was laid up in bed, and he kept fucking hearing that we don't know what it means, Captain. We don't know what it means, Captain. We don't know it. Fuck's sake. I still don't know what it means. <laughs> so, I I understood what they were going for in that in those scenes, like beyond the fact that like they're they're trying to give you the impression that he's like mentally chewing on this while he's unconscious but what they were listening to in the in the film it comes across as like morse code which is not correct but i think what they were trying to get across was that they could hear the submarine the, the japanese submarine uh the noise in the background i'm just not sure that they chose the best noise to portray that noise if you know if that makes sense i uh I don't know. I love Clark Gable in this film, but his like laid up in bed portion of the film was kind of meh for me. And I, I get the whole point of that is like, by God, the captain's obsession has been passed on to the new captain and he can grow into his own little Captain Ahab and a fully fledged sailor he is now. Um, but it... <laughs> The thing I, I didn't really understand was, is in this film, we start off with them hating each other and they have such a, a tense relationship throughout the, the first portion of them being at sea. And realistically, for no reason at all, other than like him having his little like light bulb moment where he's like, oh, he's been practicing specifically for this really difficult torpedo shot. I trust him implicitly now and I'm going to stick up for him and I'm going to squash this rebellion. It just, there, there was like a 180 in their relationship that just didn't make sense to me. I think I chalked some of that up to just the respect that one would give a fellow officer in, in the Navy and in, in the same position. Uh, cause, cause Bledsoe, I mean, Bledsoe still makes his, you know, not discomfort his his disagreement with with richardson known throughout most of the movie even though he's kind of following in behind him i think some of that is well you know if i was in richardson's position would i want a crew mutinying against me no because it also goes back to well if there's a a dissatisfied crew like then everyone's in danger right it goes back to that that we're all in this together because if if the sub goes down we're all going down. No one's getting out of this. And so we all need to kind of 
work together, even if that's chasing Captain Ahab's mad dream, or we all die. I personally would uh, would not be keen on following Captain Ahab's mad dream of the, yeah, uh, no. the Japanese destroyer. It got Seaman Butters killed. It did get Seaman Butters killed. And it got the Captain Ahab killed. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> he went down with the proverbial white whale. I wish... I know it might have been a little over the top, but the fact that he just, like, died of an infection or, or perceived infection was really kind of lackluster. Like, I really wanted hit like... It would have been way cooler if Clark Gable was killed by, like, a torpedo just falling on his head. Just... You, you could do the 19 fit you could just do the adam west batman like bonk like imagine if he took a page from um dr strange love and wrote in the torpedo that killed the, the ship <laughs> i was just having that thought actually <laughs> <laughs> i can't remember do we have dr strange love on our list it should be <laughs> I put it on I the list. I think it ought to be. Yep. You have to have the full title if you're putting it on the list. Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. We should def we should definitely get that on the list. I don't think I had it, but it, it might take a while to get around to it. But it's either the scariest comedy or the funniest disaster movie. Oh. Uh, so Greg, what was what was the high like the the best part of this film or what was the the highlight of this film for you i think the i think the the end i mean you have the climax that they are actually successful in sinking the ekikaze they are successful in in figuring out you know the the japanese sub secret right and so even though Richardson ends up dying of an infection or a brain bleed or whatever he hit his head with, um, like the the it, the movie is still a, a victory, and I think for me that's emblematic of what the subservice did as a, a whole during the war, right? So by the end of the war, the submarine service had lost fifty two boats, over thirty five hundred men, which accounted for a twenty two percent casualty rate, which was the highest of any American armed service during the war. So there, there was a lot of sacrifice that went into uh, submarines and, and the victory that they helped achieve. Um, to, to juxtapose that, submarine service at the time was 2% of the Navy's overall strength. They were responsible by the end of the war for sinking 55% of all Japanese shipping. And so Dang. I think this, this, yeah. But so there's this sense of like, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice, but the sacrifice was not in vain. I, uh, I, I get that. I appreciate that. Do you, so would you say that this film, uh, properly honors that, that sacrifice that the subservice did during World War II? I, I think so. I think the movie isn't too silly. It, it doesn't take itself too seriously, obviously, but it, it's not over the top. As far as sub operations go, like the the procedures, all of that, were pretty spot on, and I think it it does portray what the subs, what the what the goal of the submarine service at the time was, and what it took to achieve that goal. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a travesty like U five seven one. 
No, God. I hate that movie. <laughs> well, if you ever want to come back, Greg, we we can do that together. I'm sure we could we could have uh, we could tear quite it to a, shreds. Yeah, we could have quite a conversation about that. <laughs> if you guys want to invite me back, I would love to come back. This has been fun. All right. You heard it, Jack. Next film, U571. Fuck you. <laughs> Man, John's really been letting me have it recently. He's been taunting me with various shit movies that he's going to make me watch for this podcast. Uh, we could watch what's the one what's the one that I uh I posted on Instagram that got you that got your attention to begin with? Uh this the Soviet one. That one was awful. Oh, was it <laughs> uh, God was it was it K nineteen or was it uh... No, no, it wasn't K nineteen. I'm gonna blank on the movie now. It had um the, the whole cast is a bunch of like old white actors whose like faces I recognize but names I can't think of. And they're all like the, the stereotypical like two bit action movie stars. Yeah. Uh, Ed I... Ed Ed somebody plays the CO. But yeah, that that is we could we could do that movie and really tear that one to shreds because that was awful. I Yeah, I can't remember what film you originally talked about that that got my attention but um i'm glad we did this film because you know it's like we said at the beginning this is this is literally the submarine film that created the the submarine genre tropes um so it's it's a good one i god what was i going to say Now I'm blanking out. That's what I get for starting to drink at 11 a.m. on a Sunday. But <laughs> Speaking of drinks, what were you having to drink, Jack? I am drinking Fanta's special zero sugar, zero caffeine, what the Fanta Halloween special soda. That is that a, mouthful. a mouthful. Yes. And what, what, what does it taste like? See... I had trouble placing it myself, so I cheated and looked it up, and the common consensus is that it's blood orange. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Halloween, Halloween yeah. yeah. But the zero caffeine, zero zero sugar thing is my favorite part. T- tastes pretty I, good, dude, to boot. I was going to give you crap for still drinking like a Halloween drink, but I literally went and got a trick-or-treat uh blast from sonic last night so <laughs> I, i'm no better well i don't see very many thanksgiving sodas yeah there's not a huge market for gravy flavored soda there the video game store in my hometown before it closed down god rest its soul but they they would stock corn flavored soda for one patron for one guy that would always corn? go to, yeah, corn flavored soda, not corn syrup flavored soda, but soda flavored like corn. And they stocked it just for one guy that would show up to their Friday night magic. Are you from Iowa by any chance? No, <laughs> which makes this even more baffling. No, I'm, I'm from, from Iowa. That's the problem. 
Yeah, I'm from I'm from South Dakota. Our thing is beef, incest, and meth, not corn. <laughs> I don't recall incest being a thing in South Dakota. I missed that memo. <laughs> it's lower on the list of things. It's beef and meth, and then maybe incest. No, I, correction. It's beef, meth, racism, and then incest. Ah, yes. How how could we forget? I, I guess once you hit the meth, everything else is ephemeral. Yeah. Yeah, those are the two things we're known for. See, in, in Philadelphia, was it cheesesteaks and fentanyl? Something like yeah. that. Cheesesteaks yeah. and crime. Riots after an Eagles game? An Eagles game that they won? Phillies, <laughs> too. I live right next to the stadiums, too, so that's, that's whether they win or lose, I can't win. <laughs> I think my favorite Philadelphia fact is when they built their new stadium, it was the first stadium to ever have its own built-in jail. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I, uh, bless them. I don't and know. If, I don't know if you are an Eagles fan or not, Greg. Um, whether do, do you do the football thing much at all or. I, I do. I am a sports fan, but I'm a I'm a Baltimore sports fan. I grew up just north of Baltimore City, so I am a oh. Ravens and Orioles fan. So the Eagles, okay. I couldn't care less. All right, cool. Because I was like, I I have to, uh, I have to hate the Eagles by proxy because uh, one of their tight ends uh, used. So one of their tight ends, uh, his name's Dallas Goddard. He grew up in Britain, South Dakota, and went to South Dakota State University. Me and Jack went to University of South Dakota. So we already had a distaste for him because he went to our rival school. But he actually dated my wife's best friend. And when he found out he was going to become get into the nfl he became like a super massive tools and then got drafted to the eagles so since then we've it's basically it doesn't matter how good of a team it is we just have to hate hate the eagles on principle because of him well it sounds like he fits right in i i, oh, I honestly honestly couldn't care less about any of these philly sports themes but i hate them based on how much i hate their fan base and so like eagles and phillies are pretty up there because especially when they're winning because having to drive through all that mess to get home from work every day like none of them know how to drive none of them know how to use a crosswalk and the flyers fans are down there because there are no flyers fans <laughs> so whenever there's it's... a flyers game there's no traffic it's a shame because uh, there's so many things in Philadelphia that I want to see. Like, I want to see the USS Olympia. Um, I I just, I think that's the coolest ship ever because, you know, it, it carried the, the unknown soldier back to the United States. And, you know, it's also the sister ship of the Maine. Like, I think it would be the coolest thing in the world to get to check out that ship. But I also want to check out the uh, the tomb of the unknown American revolutionary soldier that's in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to check out the American Revolutionary, I believe the American Revolutionary War Museum is 
in Philly also. Yes, it's it's a good oh. it's a great museum. I've been there. A so yeah, times. there's there's tons of stuff there that I want to see, but I'm like, but then I have to go to Philadelphia, like. You do, but I, th- I think with, with as with any major city, the locals don't do the touristy things. So, like if you go to the touristy areas where most of those things are located, you won't you'll be fine. The one thing that I would advise against is if you come into the town and look for a cheesesteak, do not go to Pat's or Gino's. Okay. Yeah, I heard Gino's are a bunch of assholes. They're just they're not the best. They they have the gimmick because they're across the street from each other. They've been featured on Food Network dozen times and so everyone goes there but they're not the best in the city my preference is campos which is uh right down the street from the museum so they're uh they're pretty good and they're never that busy so yeah yeah i, j- I just want to go to philly to see gritty and have a cheese steak i'm I, i'm still trying to get gritty to come to the museum if <laughs> on to olympia at some point my career will be made <laughs> fuck yeah Gritty's the uh, the Flyers mascot, right? Yeah. Okay, so he's the one that does all the. He's like the. He's like the mascot, right? He is the mascot. He's the best thing about that team. He's arguably the best <laughs> thing about the city. He's probably the. If I remember correctly, he's probably like the best mascot, just period. Yeah, I can't think of yeah. a better one. I'm trying to imagine him just like straddling one of the uh, artillery pieces on the Olympia. Yeah, he could do it. (laughs) We have um, on the forward bridge, we have a set of brass footprints where it's it's not exactly where Dewey stood during Manila Bay, but it's like as close as you can get in the ship's current configuration. So having him be like right next to those two would be be pretty great. Uh, See, I didn't know that. So there's actually... A place on the ship that's specifically marked that is supposed to be where Admiral Dewey was. Yeah, we we have a set of brass footprints that are on the forward bridge next to the pilot house, which the ship has gone through several configurations over the course of her career. And the way she sits today, if you walk through her, you're you're seeing World War One Olympia. But the first group that had her as a museum back in the fifties wanted to interpret her as her Spanish-American wharf configuration. And so externally, they did a lot of kind of re, uh, removing certain pieces to get her back to that kind of silhouette with the turrets. So one of the most common questions we get the, uh, this day these days is, can we go inside the turrets? And the answer is no, because the turrets are fake. The turrets that are on the ship now were installed after she became a museum. The Navy removed those turrets back in 1915 when the ship was still in service because they were just terrible weapons but really? people don't know that yeah huh it's a sham it's all a sham <laughs> well so as a, as a museum one of our goals is to fix what what has been done and kind of restore her world war one silhouette the turrets are slotted over uh platforms for open gun mounts which is what she should have had by the end of her career and we, we would like someday to be able to restore those platforms and, and put the uh the five inch 51s that should be there back in place and if i'm not mistaken the olympias is still in the white fleet paint scheme right yes yeah she's still in her uh red white and buff parade colors i've always been uh, a fan of that but so I think it's, uh, or I didn't even get to 
to you, Greg. What are you drinking today? I am drinking a glass of apple cider from one of our local orchards. It's very festive. Yeah, well, I you can have your pumpkin spice. My fall, fall flavor is apple cider. And then once we get through November after Thanksgiving, I switch to peppermint. Yeah. My favorite thing is to add a bit of cumin to some apple cider so I can have a cumin cider. I don't think I've ever done that. I'll have to give that a try. <laughs> it's it's yeah, quite man, good. Once, I've, I've tried it. Once you cumin cider, you can't go back. Yeah. Do you prefer your cider hot or cold? Hot. Hot. <laughs> Warm cider. Warm cider. I, mean, I, I think... Uh, I'm a cold guy. I'm a cold setter guy. I I can go either direction. Um, I actually was test running a drink for our Thanksgiving celebrations. Um, What I'm doing is Thanksgiving mimosas. And instead of orange juice, it's going to be apple cider with... No, Jack. No. <laughs> it's going to be apple cider with the, the the champagne, and then the glass is going to be rimmed with uh, caramel. Rimmed with stuffing. Shut up. <laughs> All geniuses were considered madmen in their times. <laughs> <laughs> you can't run from me forever <laughs> no so that that was my little experiment for thanksgiving was uh uh thanksgiving mimosas but what i am what i'm currently drinking i always try and get a little uh i try to choose a drink that is kind of in line with whatever we're watching so like last week we review the movie uh, The Horse Soldier, or I can't, I can't remember what we actually reviewed. The Horse mostly. Soldiers. That's the one that just came out. I don't know if Joy Noel is the next episode coming out prior oh, to this. Oh, movie, but... never mind. You're talking okay. chronologically. Yeah. For, our, for our folks at home, the, the order we release episodes is not always the order in which we record them. Um, but the, the most recent episode at the time of this recording that is currently available to listen to was The Horse Soldiers starring John Wayne, and I drank Horse Soldier whiskey. Uh, today, because we're doing Run Silent, Run Deep, I wanted a more Navy-inspired drink, so I, I'm returning to my tried and true of uh, Sailor, Sailor Jerry's rum with uh, Coke. Next time you do a sub movie, you'll know to do the submarine screwdriver with alcohol and tang, right? Yeah, I'll I'll have to do that next time. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just have to do like rubbing alcohol and tang. Yeah, anything with coffee is also a guaranteed naval themed drink. That was, I just I really enjoy. A I think Sailor Jerry's is I enjoy it, but yeah, also you know. A world famous tattoo artist that you know many a sailor has gotten his tattoos or style of tattoos, and uh, you know he was a a navy man himself. So I figured I figured it was it was fitting enough. 
Yeah, for sure. But I think it's about time we uh, we rate this film. And Greg, uh, I don't know if you've reviewed many of our, our other episodes, but we usually like to do a one to five scale. Uh, we don't do stars because we think stars are boring. So we try and do one to five things that best represent this film. And uh, for example, uh, God, what, what have we done in the past, Jack? Uh, let's see. Exploding Wells. Um, cups of coffee. Cups of downstream from the horse's coffee exploded carriers etc etc so i am open to suggestions if if you have anything in mind that you think best exemplifies this film torpedoes one to five torpedoes jack one to five torpedoes all right jack i'll let you uh start off with your rating i give this movie four torpedoes and then one that never fired because it's out of fuel because Greg drank it all. <laughs> That's uh, we could go into a whole nother conversation about the dead torpedoes though too, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear, let's hear your rating, John. I am going be, because this is literally the film that has set the tone for the submarine film genre. And also the fact I, I legitimately enjoyed this film. I thought it was good. It was entertaining. I, I didn't scroll my phone at all while watching this film. Um, and it's, it's different for the time that it's set in. Like I said, it's not too terribly racist for being a, a film made in the 50s. And, um, you know, it's it's entertaining enough that you know it's hard to accuse it of being full of of tropes when it created the tropes so um and and the other fact is that clark gable does a terrific performance in this film so i'm going to give it five fully functional torpedoes e2 greg I'm going to split the difference and I'm going to give it four and a half fully functional torpedoes. I think, yeah. uh, like you guys said, it's a great movie. Uh, it loses a half star for me just because of the story enemy knows what to nitpick. But I think mm-hmm. anybody, anybody coming into this film, uh, with who's not a submarine nerd, like I am, uh, is going to enjoy it. So four and a half, four and a half torpedoes for me. So a torpedo without the warhead. Yeah, a, a dummy torpedo. <laughs> what you think is a torpedo, but is actually semen butters and a bunch of trash stuffed into a torpedo tube. <laughs> oh, oh. R.I.P. semen butters. Yeah, hell of a way to go. Anyway, um, let's see what Rotten Tomatoes says. This says a hundred percent on the tomometer and a seventy-nine percent audience score. I gotta. I'm going with the critic rating on this. Yeah, same. Honestly. Yeah. It's not to same mention it's not movie. very often that the Rotten Tomato critics give a film a hundred percent. Yeah. Although we've been we've been led astray before because Rotten Tomatoes also gave Sansa Iwo Jima a hundred percent, which it's good movie. <laughs> but... It it is a good movie and I enjoyed it. But let's let's get something straight. It's it's not a perfect movie. 
but so uh that has been our review of run silent run deep um you know jack i i have to agree with you that um you know we we've start greg we've started this new running joke where jack texts me at the end of each film and uh the last time was for the horse soldiers. He's like, why can't women understand that the male fantasy is just to go on the raid, go on a raid in the South to destroy the Confederacy and take home a war bride, a Southern and, Bell uh, war bride. <laughs> and this, and in, the in, the, in this film, he's like, man, why can't women just understand that the, uh, the male fantasy is to be on a submarine sinking Japanese ships around, half-naked muscular men and a crowded sub with half-naked muscular men sinking japanese ships in the pacific the ideal male fantasy is going to sea with your bros and wreaking havoc against enemy shipping yeah right yep. my my response to him was like why can't women understand that the male fantasy is being served glasses of gin while doing yard work but <laughs> Yeah, it's like the one role aside from Tokyo Rose for a woman in this film. <laughs> Which, in their defense, there wasn't a lot of women at sea in the Navy during World War II. Yeah, especially very... submarines. But hey, but... submarines are co-ed now. They are. That that they are. And we also... learned that in we learned that in Periscope Down. Down periscope, you mean? <laughs> down periscope. Oh. Down periscope, periscope, down, whatever. Whatever, semantics. <laughs> but one thing I was going to ask, um, what year was the Navy integrated? Like, like Overall with... or, or in submarines? In submarines, because there's a black dude in this movie, and I didn't think that the Navy was integrated at this time. Yeah, so during World War II, the Navy was integrated. The... The, the caveat to that was if you were a minority sailor and wanted sea time, the only ratings you were allowed to serve in were cook or mess attendant or steward. If you wanted to be anything else, you were limited to shore duty. So the Navy was integrated, but the opportunities for minorities, uh, not the best. Okay, so it was still somewhat functionally integrated or segregated is what I meant. Yeah, it was functionally segregated. The the steward, the, the rating of steward and mess attendant, the whole kind of messman's branch since its inception in, I believe, 1893 has been kind of a, a way for the Navy to segregate itself without saying it's segregated. So there's a there's a whole other conversation for us at some point, I guess. <laughs> it's segregation with extra steps. Yeah, it's 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 segregation without having any formal official policy of being segregated. I see. Well, on on that cheery note, um, Greg, uh, if there's anything that you would like to push, whether it's your own social media accounts or anything for the museums, uh, the the floor is yours. Have at it. Uh, you can find me personally uh, on at any social media, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, if you have one. I am DBF Enthusiast, and I just post random museum shenanigans generally, occasionally uh, a snippet of history or something interesting that we found. Uh, and if you're ever in Philadelphia and you have an interest in 
naval ships, uh, come see us at Independent Seaport Museum. We are open year-round, uh, seven days a week. Uh, so there's never a wrong time to come see us. Sounds great. Like I said, eventually I'll, I'll work up the courage to actually go to Philadelphia to see those things. But the time has not yet come. And uh, Jack, I believe it's my turn to choose our next film mm -hmm. i'm going to make you an offer pre or post world war ii pre pre let's do 2004's troy director's edition in like four hours yeah, deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I deserved that. Okay. okay. You chose you chose pre-World War II. That's what you get. Yeah. Yeah, what um, what would you have picked if I said post? Post? That's a great question. You didn't even have anything in mind, did you? <laughs> oh, I probably would have chose uh let me look here. Had you gone with post World War II, I would have done Olympus Has Fallen, starring Gerard Butler. Okay, so I made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I saw Olympus Has Fallen in theaters, and I was not impressed. I also saw it in theaters, and I loved it. It was so dumb. <laughs> Like, you know me, I love dumb action movies, but Christ on a bike. All right. Well, do you have anything else, Jack? Nine. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. The stars do matter. You can, if you're looking for additional content from us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Armchair Commanders Podcast. We also have a YouTube channel called History Apprentice. Uh, we have a Discord that is also under the Armchair Commanders podcast name. We'd love to have you join us over there. Um, until next week, I've been John. And I'm Jack. And we'll see you all later. Bye.